And uh, there's a way to find out who the good guys are. There truly is a way to find out. But you pick up this book, and as you read through here about man's conduct and the prophecies of what are about to come down, it's clear that there aren't no good guys. That's what it really amounts to. And then you have some on the idea that, well, yeah, you're right. No man can save us at this point, but God will. God save America and God bless America. And they're taking that. Uh, You and I very well know that uh, the blessing on America is done. God will not bless it anymore. I do believe he passed judgment in August of 2017. And that judgment has slowly been coming upon us. And it's getting stronger day by day and week by week. Until it all comes completely apart and we go into captivity. And some are saying we're going to do that. Some are saying we're already in captivity. And to some degree that is true. Uh, But it's going to get to be a, a captivity of the iron yoke, not the soft yoke. It's going to get a lot tougher. So we know that's coming. What about us? What about us? I'm going to Joel 2 here. We've been talking a great deal about the qualities we should have in Matthew 5. And last week we spent on mercy, and I wanted to continue that some today. And it takes me right to Joel 2. Uh, The context of Joel, of course, is the end-time events and the day of the Lord coming uh, when God is going to begin to take a hand and to punish And primarily, uh, the object, first of all, of his anger is Israel and Judah. Uh, We cannot look for special dispensation, dispensation and mercy at this point just because we are part of Israel and Judah, because God deals with those whom he has worked with, those who have accepted his name, first. What knowledge you have, you are held accountable for. That's something Herbert Armstrong said uh, quite frequently. God expects you to do with what you have. And throughout history, Israel was given opportunity first. And to whom much is given, much is required. And we are not producing anything as a nation or the other tribes of Israel either, nor is Judah. And God says we will go into captivity first. Now, we already saw the church go into captivity, as we've said maybe hundreds of times by now, and it is almost completely destroyed. And now the nation is right on the edge of plunging down that precipice and being totally destroyed. So that's where we are. We're at the end of the sixth day of mankind's existence on this earth. And the seventh day, the millennium, and the kingdom of God is coming next. But these last few years are going to be terrible years. I hear some people saying, well, sure glad we got 2020 behind us. 2021 is bound to be better. 
get a clue. <laughs> it's going to be a whole lot worse than 2020 was because we've headed down that steep precipice into the bottomless pit. And it's going to get much worse as this year goes on. That's not my prediction. That's this word that says that. So when we come to the book of Joel, it's talking about this end time when God begins to intervene and the day of the Lord is almost upon us when he will utter his judgment in uh, great plagues and trouble and famine and pestilence and all the things that we've been reading about for many, many years. And that time is now not upon the Gentiles, uh, it's upon us. And the Gentiles are all arrayed against us to destroy us. We're the great whore Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18. And it says the beast will destroy her and devour her with fire and kill her. So our nation is slated to die first, to receive the punishment of Satan and the Gentile countries of the world first. And there will be four and a half, three and a half years of the times of the Gentiles that are fulfilled where they will be given opportunity to rule the earth under Satan and then will be deposed by the return of Christ in glory and power. So that's what's ahead of us. Now here in Joel, let's go to chapter 2. I came here because I was looking up the word merciful and mercy uh, in Scripture to prepare the sermon. And this is one of the ones that came up in verse 12. He's sounding a warning, or in verse, chapter 2, verse 12. He's sounding a warning at the beginning of this chapter to blow the trumpet in Zion and warn God's people uh, to tremble, for the day of the Lord is very near. It's nigh at hand. And what is to be the response? He goes on down through that chapter talking about uh, terrible military action that is about to occur. And then he says in verse 12, Therefore, since this is coming, it cannot be stopped. There's no man that can stop it, and God will not stop it, because it's coming from him. So what does he say? Therefore, also now, says the Eternal, Turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Now you have so-called Christians out there who are saying God's going to save us, we need to pray. But you don't see the kind of reaction and turning to God that this describes. There may be a few individuals here and there who read this and indeed do that. But this is the response when we see all this coming. There's a great deal of talk about, uh, even this morning I read, about uh, Chinese troops moving into uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan, I think it said. don't know, uh, but that was the report. So this thing is very, very near, and it's upon us, and we already know there are uh, Chinese and Russian troops scattered through a, across the country. So this is the required response that we are to have. And what does God say if we do that? 
Rend your heart and not your garments. It's our hearts that are the problem, not our garments. And turn to the eternal, your God. That's what we should do. Then what would he do if we did that? Comes next. For he is gracious and merciful. He tells us, as we read last week, that we are to be merciful and show mercy on others, even as we desire mercy from God on ourselves. To be as merciful with each other as he is with us. And here he states, he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and of great kindness. That's his personality. That's his mindset. That's just what he is. That's what we strive to be, but that's what he is. And relents him of the evil. God does not want to do this evil on the nation or on the world. It isn't something he wants to do. It's something he has to do to cause them to repent and turn to him ultimately. They will not do it otherwise. Our nation will not do it until chastened soundly. And God is going to administer that because he is a successful, loving father who wants to see all his children obey and serve him and be respectful and loving and give him the honor he deserves as the sovereign of the universe. And he knows there's nothing that is going to evoke that response short of these things here in Joel and the other prophecies. It just won't happen. Do you foresee this nation suddenly turning to God and everyone in this nation getting on their knees and weeping and crying and fasting and crying out to God? I can't even envision it. Having lived in this nation this many years and seeing where we've gone from the time I was a child until today. And some of our founding fathers wouldn't have been able to comprehend what had happened from their day until I was born. You know, and it's just gotten worse and worse as time has gone on. America is not going to repent. God said in Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. It won't happen. Now, who are you going to believe? God or Billy Graham's son? You know, or whoever says to pray. Because it's empty. It's empty. But God is very kind. And he will relent of the evil before all flesh is destroyed. But he knows he has to do this to us and to the world in order to get us where he wants us to be. So that he can love us in kindness and mercy instead of in harshness and chastening. He doesn't like to chasten, but he has to. So it says, who knows if he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meal offering and a drink offering to the eternal your God. 
So he says he's kind, he's merciful, he's loving. He calls upon people to repent with their whole heart and turn to him. And that it's possible he will relent. Well, who for? Only for those who respond to this. Nobody else would even consider relenting for. Just the ones who will listen. And then he gives, uh, in 15, in the ensuing verses, uh, a warning to blow the trumpet, to call a fast. Now, just when that is speaking of on a, as a specific thing, I don't know. I know in the 25 years since I've been teaching these things, I've done it a time or two based on this, thinking that we're... Almost there. We're there. John Reitenbaugh did it one time after I gave a sermon on Pentecost. And the church fasted. But we weren't quite there yet. Now all the signs indicate that we are there. And there may be a moment of truth when we realize even more so for sure where we are that it will be time to physically do that. But on the, in the meantime, we all need to be fasting and praying and beseeching God and to be in this attitude of seeking Him with our whole heart because He might repent or relent because we are candidates for destruction as well, you know. We really are. Unless we respond. He says if this kind of repentance happens in verse 18, then will the eternal be jealous for his land and pity his people. Now, we know the nation's not going to repent. So his people, the physical Israelites, and his people, the physical Gentiles, are not going to repent. So he's not going to be jealous for their land until the millennium. So the only candidates for this kind of mercy are those who are called out as his spiritual people, spiritual Israel, the church. He says he will respond with pity, with mercy, with kindness. Yes, the eternal will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you approach a reproach among the heathen. He will set us aside. He will bless us. And will not be bothered by the heathen anymore. I will remove far off from you the northern army. And will drive into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea. And his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up. Because he has done great things. Now he tells us in Malachi that seven, even eight principal men will send the Assyrian packing. He'll give that kind of power and make his church a sharp threshing machine. That's also back in Isaiah 40, 40 or 41, I believe it is. Somewhere right in there. Fear not, O land. 
Be glad and rejoice, for the eternal will do great things. So he's going to do horrible, terrible things in chastening physical Israel and the Gentiles, the population of the earth, except those who will turn to him with their whole hearts. Those he promises to bless and do great, wonderful things for. We could go through Isaiah and see those again. They're there. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. This hasn't occurred yet. Now, I think it's on both a physical and a spiritual level, but the church has not bloomed yet and blossomed, just like Haggai 2 says it hasn't. And neither have the fields. You and I, some of us, have goats and cattle and chickens and so on. And we haven't had precipitation all winter. Didn't have any all summer, hardly. We normally get quite a few thunderstorms and hardly had any. We've had just enough snow to make the ground kind of white for a bit. Less than a dose of manna for one day, I think. That's all we've had. We're in drought conditions. Come spring, can I turn goats and cattle out and expect them to have much to eat? Not a whole lot. I mean, we didn't even make a crop of goat heads or tumbleweeds this summer. It's pretty dry if you don't get a crop of those. So, he says that the wilderness will spring. And that the beasts of the field aren't to worry, they'll have something to eat. The only way yours and mine are going to have anything to eat right now is we buy hay. (laughs) That's the only way. But this is going to change. Now, let's get more direct. Who's he talking to here? Verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion. That's who is to be glad, is the children of Zion. God moved us here, right in the Zion area, didn't he? And rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately. We've had some blessing, not a whole lot. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. The floors will be full of wheat, the fat shall be over, fat shall overflow with wine and oil. He goes down and says we'll have plenty in the years that we've been in spiritual and physical drought will be behind us in verse 25. In verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the eternal your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. Then he's going to pour out his spirit at a little later time and show wonders in the heavens and the earth before, notice, verse 31, the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. This isn't speaking of millennial blessings. That's after the mighty and great day of the Lord comes. He's speaking of this before that comes. So when he speaks of Zion here and his people, he's talking of his church whom he's called out and his remnant whom he's going to bring. And it's all going to happen before the day of the Lord which Joel is talking about and the other prophecies talk about. So these are blessings that are going to come upon Zion 
if we will turn to God with all our hearts, with all our minds, all our body and soul. That's what he expects, and he will show mercy. He makes it very clear here. It says, trouble's coming, turn to me, and those who do are going to be blessed, even before the millennium, before the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is very, very close now. Very close. So he's not talking to anybody here but you and me and others who understand God's truth. That's who he's talking to. And he's promised mercy on us. All right, let's go to Jonah. We'll see a little bit more about God here. Here in Jonah, of course we know the story. I want to slip down to chapter 3. You remember Jonah had been told to go to a Gentile nation, the Assyrians, the capital was Nineveh, and preach to them. And God said that maybe they would repent. And you know what? Jonah said, no, I will not go and preach to Nineveh because I don't want them to repent. That was his attitude. God had said he would destroy Nineveh and the Assyrians unless they repented. And they were enemies of Israel, and Jonah wanted them destroyed. So his attitude was, I don't want them to repent. It wasn't really a very good attitude, I would say, overall. And when he refused, don't do this to God. <laughs> don't refuse God. When God gives you instruction, which we just read in Joel, for instance, don't refuse it. Listen, pay attention, do something about it. Because Jonah refused. And then God prepared a great fish and swallowed him up. And he was in there for three days and three nights. And Christ used that example about how long he would be in the grave, 72 hours. Now, I've heard stories about how there were digestive juices in there. I guess God gave him oxygen some way. This was a special fish. It wasn't a whale. It was something God prepared that Jonah could survive in. But the stories are he came out bleached just as white as snow from gastric juices. I don't know whether that was true or not. But if that was true, that would be one white man coming into Nineveh. <laughs> he had been bleached clean. And maybe that's true. I don't know. It's just people's speculation. But at any rate... That isn't the key. The key is attitude. And he didn't have the attitude God wanted him to have, so God fixed it. Had him thrown overboard and swallowed up, and three days later spit out on the beach. And then God said, now, will you go to Nineveh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I think I will. I'll, I'll do just what you say. Well, he did. And you know what? Nineveh repented. And God used that example. He says, man, if Israel would repent like the Gentiles do, we'd have something. But he said, Israel's too stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious, like a backsliding heifer in the book of Hosea. Verse 5 of chapter 3, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth 
from the greatest of them even to the least. So they did what we read we should now be doing in Joel 2.12. They did it. For word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. King of Nineveh, a godless nation, had its king repent in sackcloth and ashes when Nineveh brought him word that his nation was corrupt and that God was going to destroy it. He repented. Wow. Will that happen here at the end? No. God says he's going to send preachers out for three and a half years and tell them what to do. And they won't do it. And they'll kill them at the end. And the punishment, the preaching, the word will have been completely ignored. So they'll have to be destroyed. But here was an example where they did. Now let's see verse 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water. Now, he took it to an extreme. Not only will men fast and pray, but animals won't have food or water. He was serious. I don't, I, Day of Atonement, I don't keep my animals from eating and drinking, do you? No. It wouldn't occur to us that they should fast. They're not going to repent. But the king of Nineveh was pretty serious about this. Now let's notice chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. He didn't still want to see Nineveh repent. Now he had had a really bad attitude and got swallowed up for three days. And then he says, okay, I'll go. And he probably figured, well, they won't repent anyway. It's okay. I'll do it. And then they did repent. And oh, was he angry. And he prayed to the Eternal, said, I pray you, O Eternal, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful Slow to anger and of great kindness and repent you of evil. He's quoting from, I think, Deuteronomy there. Uh, I believe it's chapter 4. Those very words God spoke through Moses. He says, I knew that. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech you, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. When I see these guys repenting, I'd rather die than live. Now let's go on down to verse 7. No, verse 6. Jonah went out to see what would happen to the city in verse 5. And the Eternal prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to, to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Now, God was working with Jonah. 
as we've stated, Jonah had a bad attitude. And then when Nineveh did what God said, he had a bad attitude on top of that. And then he says, God, let me just die. So he went out to watch what's God going to do. Sat down, and it was hot. And God caused a gourd, a plant with leaves. Gourds have big leaves on them. To shelter and to shade Jonah. God doesn't give up on us very easily. He's working pretty heavily with Jonah here. And that made Jonah happy. Oh, I get shade. Wow. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. So God showed Jonah, you know, I can show mercy, and I can give you shade and protection. This thing just grew up overnight, and it was there, and you were so happy with it. But you know what? I can also send a worm and get rid of it, and it'll wither up in one day, just like that. He kind of trying to get Jonah to truly repent, even as Nineveh had. And Jonah, an Israelite, was not really having any part of it up to this point. Because we're stubborn and stiff-necked by nature, more so than even the Gentiles. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind. A heavy wind. I don't know how fast it was blowing. 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, who knows. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die. So he comes back to that and said again, It is better for me to die than to live. There's a man pretty discouraged. He's more or less curled up in a fetal position here at this point. He's not getting his way, not getting what he wanted. And God shows him, hey, I can give you a gourd. I could also take it away. You going to listen to me? Go back to Joel 2. Here's what you need to do. Going to listen to me? <laughs> you know, same message. So then God speaks to Jonah. Verse 9, do you well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Now, what kind of an attitude is that? I gave you a gourd. It withered. What are you angry about? There wasn't one there when we started, and there isn't one there now. And the wind's blowing, and it's hot, and you fainted. You going to listen? Will, will you hear me now? Should you have a bad attitude about it and be angry? Then said the Eternal, You have had pity on the gourd, for the which you had not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. What are you mad about? You had nothing to do with it. You were just sitting there on the ground wishing to die. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than 600,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? 
Wow. We don't know Jonah's response to that. But he brought up that gourd, caused it to flourish, caused it to die, and Jonah was angry about it. (laughs) Well, God says, here's 600,000 people and cattle. Why Why should I destroy them like I did the gourd? What are you angry about? If I save 600,000 people, you ought to be happy. I don't know what happened to Jonah after that, but I'll tell you what. There's an incredible, there's an incredible lesson here for us to pay attention to God and do what he says, and things will go well. If not, things will get worse. And he said, if we'll repent... He will show mercy on us, and he will drive the Assyrian this time away from us. He'll not be allowed to destroy us. All right, let's go to Luke 6. I'm really trying to show here what God's attitude is, what he is as a personality. Chapter 6 of Luke Let's go down to verse 35. Well, let's go up first uh, to verse 32. If you love them which love you, what thank have you? For sinners also love those that love them. It's easy to love somebody that loves you. Somebody that doesn't love you, now that's a little different deal. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have you, for sinners also do that. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have you there? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love you your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. You give without strings. You don't take back what you give. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. There's another place says he gives rain upon the just and the unjust. God loves his enemies. Most of the people on the face of the earth today are his enemies. And he's going to save most of them before this is all said and done. Just as he saved that great city, Nineveh, way back then, of 600,000 people, because they listened to what the unwilling Jonah had to say. Be you therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give to your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. We will receive what we give. If we don't give, we won't receive. 
We're to be merciful even when human nature cries against mercy. Because God is going to be merciful even when human beings cry against Him. But He will punish them until they bow their knees. And even on into the millennium, if they don't come keep the Feast of Tabernacles, no rain and plagues until they do. So God can be harsh, but when we repent, He is merciful. And he's even being merciful in the horror that he is bringing upon this nation right now and upon the world in the next few years. That's merciful because it is a mercy death followed by a mercy resurrection in the great white throne judgment and an opportunity of eternal salvation. So it's a mercy killing is what it amounts to. So he's being merciful even to sinners. Luke 18. Uh, verse 9. And he spoke this parable to certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So here were people, like the Pharisees, who loved to think that they were righteous and they despised others and put them down and looked down upon them because they weren't as righteous in their mind as they were. So this is to whom he is speaking. And do we ever do that? Rise and put ourselves above others and think, ah, they're not as righteous as I am. Or they could only be like I am. Two men went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I pray every morning. I study every morning, and I don't mind telling you so, uh, God tells us to go in our closet or in a private place to pray uh, and to study. Not to brag about our prayer and our study. Not to do it so that men might see how righteous we are because we pray and study. Go do that in private before God. And then let your works show your relationship with God. No, they like to pray publicly. They like to brag about it publicly. And say, sure glad I'm not like these guys. And I fast and I give tithes of all that I possess. Oh, I'm so righteous. And the publican, standing far off, would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the best he could do. That's the best prayer he could make. That's the attitude he had. He realized he was imperfect. He realized he had flaws. He realized he needed help and he needed mercy. So he called out to God for mercy in his sin. The other one wouldn't admit sin and bragged to God about how righteous he was. Well, what's God's response here? Who did God show love and mercy toward in this case? 
I tell you, verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So instead of being full of self and exalting self and telling each other how good we are, we need to be admitting that we're not anywhere near like God. That we're far, far, far from the standard, which is what he is, and there's no comparison between us and God at this point. So what else can we do but hang our head and pray for mercy? That's what we have to do. And that's what we're doing in Joel too, turning to him with all our heart and asking for mercy and forgiveness and grace and love. And maybe he'll turn and relent and bless us. And then he goes on and he, I think, is showing that some will do that. Ten percent remnant of his church are going to do that. He says they will show up. It is going to happen. This is not an either-or situation. They are going to come. And he is going to bless them out of Zion. There's very, very clear prophecies showing that that is going to happen. And we can be part of it if we just have the kind of attitude that this publican had. Go on to Hebrews 2. Uh, Hebrews 2. And here, let's pick it up in verse 16. Speaking of Christ, all through this book, it says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like to his brethren. In all things, when Christ walked this earth, he was just like us. Same nature, same mind that wanted to go contrary to God. He was tempted in all points like as we are. This is incredible that God would come down and be flesh and have to fight the same things we fight. Made like his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So he is our mediator. He is our reconciler. He's the one who came down here and was just like we are, except he never gave in to the things that we have given in to. He never sinned, not once. But he had the nature to sin, and was tempted. People don't believe that sometimes. It's right here in Scripture. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to help to feed those that are tempted. So in order to be our high priest, 
in order to understand us completely and totally, he had to be just like us. For 33 and a half years, he was just like you and me. He wasn't God floating around down here an inch off the ground. He was a human being with human desires, all the desires that you and I might have. Tempted in all points, like as we are. Not some of them, all of them. And he resisted every one of them. And never once gave in. He was very close to his Father in heaven and prayed very diligently and struggled with himself. And it says that he learned by the things that he suffered right here in this book. He suffered temptation, trial, tribulation, and difficulty, and death at the hands of people who hated him. He went through an awful lot for you and me. Now he is at the right hand of the Father. As our high priest is our mediator, and every one of our prayers goes through him. Every one of the accusations that Satan makes against us goes through him. And he mediates for us. He takes our side. He's our elder brother who loves us. He's our husband-to-be who wants us to be forgiven and cleansed and be a perfect wife. He's all of those things to us. He's our Savior, our Redeemer. But he went through everything you and I have and do. Incredibly. So he can be our Savior. He can say to the Father, I know it looks bad. (laughs) I know. I saw that. I saw it. But Father, I was there. I had the same problem. I had the same temptation. And only through you was I able to withstand it. And I'm telling you, that one's going through a severe trial down there, having a terrible time, and I really struggled with that, Father. Have mercy. Have kindness. Have forgiveness. And the Father says, you're right, son. I watched you go through that. I saw your struggle. And I saw you overcome it. Let's help that one down there struggle and overcome it and have mercy upon them. That's his attitude. That's the way he thinks. Go on to chapter 8. Here in verse 9. Now he's referring back to the Old Covenant with Israel for physical blessing. He says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Mitzrayim, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Eternal. Wound up in divorce. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal, a new covenant. And that's what he's explaining in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the conditions of the new covenant overseen by the Holy Spirit so that we might indeed turn to him. 
This is the covenant I'll make after those days. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. The new covenant is going to go right on through this time, through the millennium, and through the great white throne judgment, and everyone is going to have an opportunity at the new covenant. Yours and mine is now, but for the vast majority of people who've lived from Adam till today and on, we'll have theirs then. From the least to the greatest, everybody gets a chance. Why? For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. God is going to be kind to his enemies. He's going to be merciful. He's going to lead them to repentance and ultimately bless them. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Now he's offered it to a few. Started that in basically in Acts 2 on Pentecost. Offered it to a few. Totally, 144,000 will respond and be the bride of Christ. And the rest will have it offered later. So our nation today is still under the terms of the Old Covenant. It waxes old like a garment you wear and wear, and it's ready to be thrown away. But it hasn't been yet. And it is the same rules, the same laws, the same conditions that Israel is under today that they were under in the wilderness. And because of our national sins and breaking of his commandments, he is going to punish us just like he did ancient Israel when they sinned as a nation. The only ones who have relief from that are those who have been offered the new covenant and have accepted it and lived by it. And then, after the day of the Lord and the millennium starts, the old covenant will be thrown away like an old garment. And everybody will be offered the new covenant, even as you already have. Everybody will. Now that's pretty merciful. God has sat there on his throne since Adam and Eve and watched, what number, 60 billion, they estimate, people live on this earth and not more than a handful have ever obeyed. Didn't he say there when he gave the Ten Commandments that he'll have mercy on the thousands of them which keep them? Didn't say millions. Didn't say billions. Just mere thousands out of billions. He knew ahead of time how many people would respond to and obey God. He knew. And he said it. Just thousands out of all these billions. But he's going to turn and offer them a new deal, a new opportunity. And they'll all have opportunity to become eternal spirit beings with God and his kingdom. That's his plan. That's his purpose. And he's called you to be a leader in that. 
Everybody has to bow their knee before it's all over. Everybody has to turn to God to be blessed. Now, God has told us now is your turn to turn to God and be blessed, even before the day of the Lord. What a marvelous opportunity. You and I, and 10% of what was the church, are the only ones that are going to be offered to go to Zion and come under the protection of God during these terrible times ahead. Read the comments underneath some of the articles about the end times here and how people see it coming. They see trouble on the horizon. They see trouble in our country. They know we're headed to civil war. And they're saying, oh, God, save us, and God isn't going to, because it isn't time yet. When the time is right, he will. But there are a lot of upset, perplexed, confused people out there in our country right now, and they don't know what to think. You know what to think. You know what is coming. You know the way out of it. Now we just got to do it. And then... Who knows if he will return and repent and protect us. And we can have his word going out from Zion and we can be part of showing the world who God is. What a wonderful opportunity we have. And I hope that we will respond, every one of us, the way we should. And put aside the world, put aside Satan, put aside our nature, and love God and love our neighbor. That's all he asks us to do from the heart. And he will bring us out of this. Now, this thing of mercy, let's talk about this just a little bit. Why isn't mercy mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians 6? It isn't mentioned specifically, but long-suffering is. And long-suffering and mercy are first cousins. (laughs) They're very, very closely related. And we've seen, I didn't even, I only went through, basically in the concordance, merciful to come up with plenty of scriptures to get across God's mercy to us. And there were many, many more by the hundreds of the word mercy being used in the Bible that I didn't even touch. I mean, I went through some of them, but... There's so much of it, we just go on for week after week after week. So much in the Bible about God's mercy. So it is one of his primary attributes. Mercy is just, he is merciful. That's the word he uses there 26 times in the psalm, over and over and over. It's one of his greatest attributes and one of the greatest things about his spirit that there is. So, it's closely akin to love. It's closely akin to long-suffering, patience, mercy with people when they aren't what you think they ought to be. You're patient with them. You're long-suffering with them. You're merciful toward them and not condemning them because they aren't what you think they ought to be. Now, God knows people on earth aren't what they ought to be. And yet mercy is one of his greatest attributes. Let's uh, go to 1 Timothy 1 to kind of bear this out a little bit. 
I've got just three or four more scriptures here. But I want to show you the connection here. 1 Timothy 1. And do I want Second Timothy one? I wrote that down wrong. How did I do that? It shows the kinship, the one I'm referring to, shows the kinship between long-suffering and mercy. And I think mentions them both in the same verse. And I don't know. Oh yeah, here it is. I was in chapter 2. No wonder I couldn't find it. I didn't believe what I wrote. Anyway, chapter 1, verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy... That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should thereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So he includes his mercy shown to him, to Paul, he's writing to Timothy, and that the the long-suffering or the patience and the mercy that he showed to Paul, was a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now, this kind of echoes what we've been reading a little bit. What was Paul when he was still Saul? He hated God. He hated the church. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And that's about as bad as you can get as a human being, is to be someone who claims to worship God And as a hypocrite, that's about as bad as it gets. Claiming you are what you aren't. That's what Paul was. And not only was it in his mind and heart, he went about literally killing those who would follow Christ. And when he saw persecution and others killing those whom God had called out, he said, yeah! Get them, and I'll get these over here. He enjoyed seeing Christians die. Sounds kind of like Jonah. (laughs) Only Jonah didn't want to see uh, Gentiles die. But Paul wanted to see Christians die. He was a little like Pelosi and AOC and... Biden and some of these people who are persecuting so-called Christians and want to see anyone who honors God dead. And if they get in power, they are going to do that. Read Daniel 9. It's in there. It's all through the Scriptures. How anyone who serves God or worships God or believes in God is going to be hated. Why? Because the one who's overseeing this whole process is Satan who hates God And he hates anyone who will worship God. And it is his avowed goal and focus to kill all who would obey God. And when he's cast down from heaven for the last time, he is going to come after Christians with his whole heart. True Christians. 
And only those who have escaped to Zion will be saved out of it. That's all. And Satan is behind the New World Order. He's behind everything that is happening in our country and the world today. And he's influencing those people very heavily. So are they coming after Christians? You bet they are, because they worship Satan the devil, whether they know it or not. Some of them know it, others don't know it, but they do, by their deeds, just like the Pharisees. They didn't think they worshiped the devil, but God says, you are of your father the devil. He told them. They didn't believe him, but he told them that. So here was a man who hated God. Didn't know it, but he did. He hated Christ, for sure, and knew that he did. And he hated anyone who would accept the Christ and kill them every time he got a chance. And God showed what? Mercy on one of his worst enemies. And struck him down on the road to Damascus and blinded him and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Christ was alive, and he was the one who was being persecuted. Oh, (laughs) he began to think. And through the process, he repented and began to worship the Father and the Son. And God showed great mercy and long-suffering and patience with him. And he said right here, that is a pattern to them which should thereafter believe on him to life everlasting. That we, who were sinners, God will forgive and offer us eternal life and give it to us if we will but submit to him. So Paul says, what God did to me is a pattern for you. Any of you who follow after. If God showed that much mercy and that much compassion and that much patience with one called Saul until he became Paul, one of the strongest friends of Christ ever to walk the earth. From one of the most vile enemies to one of the greatest worshipers ever. Wow. Now how much faith do you have that God the Father and His Son can transform you? If they transformed Paul, you ain't much by comparison. He'll have an easier time with you and me than he did Paul. Maybe he won't have to get as dramatic with us as he did Paul. I hope not. I hope we respond to his word and to what Paul tells us here and that his long-suffering and mercy is shown to us And we don't have to go through what Jonah and Paul went through. If we will put ourselves through repentance, our problems are solved. Even in this life. Psalm 86, 15. Psalm 86. Verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. So he lumps those 
emotional attributes of God here together in one verse. Compassion, graciousness, long-suffering, mercy, and truth. So those show the attributes of God, his personality, his way of thinking, and he lumps long-suffering, one of the fruit of the spirit, fruits of the Spirit mentioned, with mercy and compassion. So all those good emotions and feelings God has toward us. We can be very, very thankful for that. Let's go to Numbers 14. I'm almost done here, but we'll take, what, two more after this. Numbers 14. Now, Israel had been having all kinds of trouble and provoked God and rebelled. And they're warned in verse 9, don't rebel against God or fear the people of the land and so on. But let's go down to uh, verse 18. Even with Israel, the eternal is long-suffering and of great mercy. So he links those two close cousins together right here, just as he did in Timothy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Now he says he's merciful and forgiving, and clears transgressions, but he also says the sins of the fathers come down upon them for the third and fourth generation. Now how is that merciful? Let's go on and get a little more of the picture. Verse 19, Pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy, and as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. God is being asked to continue to show mercy. And the Eternal said, I have pardoned according to your word. Okay, Moses. I'm listening, and I will pardon. They don't deserve it, but I'm going to pardon. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the eternal. Now there's a far-reaching statement. Here, God has shown mercy, and then he has said, I'm going to punish. Your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness, and so on. And then Moses intercedes, and God says, okay, I'll show mercy, but let me tell you something. As I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the eternal. He's stating his purpose here, what he is going to accomplish. The whole earth is going to receive mercy and forgiveness. On the other hand, they may have to go through some trouble first, is the point that he is going to make. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. Now God's counting back from the time they started rebelling at the Red Sea, 
And according to his count, ten times they've come out in open rebellion against him. And they haven't changed yet. (laughs) Here's the problem. So he says, yeah, Moses, I'll show mercy, but my glory is going to go all around the earth. And here I've given mercy ten times, and they've not hearkened. Surely they shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. So the story is, of course, that spies were sent into the land, and only Joshua and Caleb came out with a good report and said, help us, God, we can do this. The rest of them said, oh, no, there's giants, and they hate us, and they'll kill us all. Now he goes on down to include Joshua, the two who were faithful, and turned to him. Out of all those Israelites. So he says, yeah, I'll show mercy. But these people, after ten times rebelling against me here in the wilderness, are going to die here. And my glory is going to fill the entire earth. So what he's really saying here is, yeah, they're going to die physically, but we're going to go through a lot of more history and a lot more trouble and a rebellion at the end of the 6,000 years, and I'm going to have to kill nearly everybody like these people are going to die. And when it's all said and done, my glory will fill the earth. So he's making a pronouncement here that goes way on down the track to the end of the line, where everyone will have had a chance and most people will have been saved. God has a plan all along. You understand it, but not many people do. Now, we've rehearsed the mercy of God for two sermons in a row and how merciful and kind and loving He is. Did I finish my thought there? Let me see if I was supposed to go on down a little bit more. Numbers 14 I was. Maybe I finished where I was going. Yeah, with Caleb in verse 24 was the point I wanted to make. So we've seen God's mercy shown in all these scriptures in so many ways and how merciful he truly is. There's no one on earth that will show more mercy than God will. He's not an angry person trying to destroy mankind, as some preachers will tell you. And God's going to get you for that. And he's up there to make you suffer. And nearly everybody's going to hell. That's not God. He's a kind, loving, merciful, long-suffering God who's going to ultimately bring every knee into subjection and be able to bless the peoples of this earth. That's what he is. Now, let's go to Matthew 18 and see what he tells us about this situation. Matthew 18. And verse 21. Here, he's told Peter he was going to put him in charge of the church physically. And then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? 
This was a question. Peter was a new Christian. He was trying to sort out, as the physical leader under Christ of the church, if someone sinned against him, how often should he forgive them? He said, how about seven? He kind of voted for seven. That's, uh, that's how many times I, he thought he was being very magnanimous. He thought, if I'm the head of the church, physically speaking, as the leading minister, uh, I've got to oversee matters. I have to make judgments. I have to tell people whether they're forgiven and can still be part of the church or whether or not they have to be disfellowshipped, as Paul did with the man who was committing incest. And then I've got to decide when to forgive them and let them back. So he was wrestling, obviously, with this question. And it was one of the first things, apparently, that came to his mind when he says, Peter, I'm going to put you in charge. I'm not going to be there physically. I'm going to be at my father's throne overseeing, but I'm going to put you in charge. Ooh, that probably came down pretty heavy on his shoulders because the authority and the use of it had to be a heavy burden. Now, he had seen, as he grew up, how the Pharisees and Sadducees handled things. He had seen the Romans and how they handled things. And he knew God was a merciful God. And he knew he had to be in charge and make decisions in people's lives. So that weight of responsibility settled on his shoulders and was very much in his mind. So after he's been told, I'm putting you in charge, he says, well, how many times should I forgive? And knowing God was a merciful God, he thought he was probably being pretty generous in saying seven times. And one day, how often are we willing to forgive somebody who sins against us in one day? What if somebody came up and slapped you alongside the head and said, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. I, I really didn't mean to do that, but you just look so ugly I had to. Or whatever reason they come up with that they slapped you alongside the head. And you say, that's okay, I, for, I forgive you. It hurts, but I forgive you. And an hour later, they come up alongside and slap you along the other side of the head. And they say, well, you know, I've really disliked you for a long time. And I, it just came together in my mind, and I couldn't help myself. I just, I just had to do that. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I know it wasn't Christian, and I shouldn't have done it. But rats, I did. Forgive me. Okay, you're forgiven. That happens every hour for seven hours. What kind of attitude are you going to have by now? What if somebody just badmouths you once? And you're, you heard it. And you come around the corner and say, I heard what you said. Well, you know, I really, I was out of order. I, I shouldn't have said that about you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. What if he does it? Seven times. And you hear it every time. And he says, forgive me. How much patience, long-suffering, and mercy do you have? 
I don't know if my mother ever spanked me seven times in a day or not. Might have come close a few times. How many times? Well, Peter thought seven was being pretty generous. And as we sit here and I describe this, you're probably thinking, yeah, that's quite a bit of forgiving if somebody's doing that to me. Well, what was the answer? How many times shall I forgive? Seven times? Is that enough? That ought to be enough. Surely that's enough. Seven times. That's enough. Jesus said to him, I say not to you seven times, but till seventy times seven. That's 490. 490 times in one day. That's, I would say, pretty much unlimited mercy and forgiveness. Pretty much unlimited. It would be hard for somebody to sin against you 490 times in one day, wouldn't it? 24 hours in a day, divide that out times 490, and he's coming back every few minutes. You know, whap, whap, whap. Or with his mouth. Bad-mouthing you. You'd barely, he'd barely have time to say, forgive me, and you'd barely have time to say it back before he hits you again. What Christ is saying here is mercy should be unlimited. Forgiveness should be unlimited. If somebody repents... There's no limit on it. Nobody's going to do that to you enough times for you to have to go 490. It just can't happen. It won't happen. So anything up till then, you need to have the kind of attitude that God has. And that is unlimited mercy, for His mercy lasts how long? Forever and ever. And we've got to come to be like him. Now, we've seen his mercy with Paul. We saw it with Jonah. I could show you many more examples with Israel, on and on and on. And he told us, when we began this in Joel 2, that if we would turn to him with all our hearts, he will show mercy on us, even in these end times, and draw us out and take us to Zion and protect us through all that our friends and relatives and neighbors and this whole nation and world are going to go through. And we can have total protection throughout. Wow, how merciful is that? How many times have I sinned against God in one day? I couldn't count it. I couldn't count it. I don't know when my worst day was. You don't know when your worst day was. But I know if I look back over my whole lifetime, there have been times when I was in a bad attitude all day long. With all kinds of wrong thoughts. Not necessarily thoughts against God. But wait a minute. If my thoughts were against anything in His Word if my thoughts were against any of his people, any of his children, then that's against him, isn't it? Yeah. So I had a whole day, maybe, 
I don't know, maybe a week in a bad attitude. Let me think back a little. I remember things happening in Pasadena that I had a bad attitude about over a long period of time. And it was almost an obsession, the frustration that was there over some things that I knew were going on. And some of us have had those same frustrations, and they've lasted for years. And we still go back and have attitudes about people who are long since dead and gone. And events that are long since dead and gone because it affected us so deeply. So how many times in a day have we maybe had bad thoughts about the children of God? Or the way of God? Ultimately God? Maybe hundreds of times in one day. And yet he has shown mercy and forgiveness and drawn us out and brought us forth to show mercy to if we will but serve him. Wow.